Hi, we're talking to Neil Tesser, who has written the liner notes for the new Savoy 10-inch LP collection by the great Charlie Bird Parker, centennial of his birth. And um, welcome to the show. Hi, it's good to talk to you. So here we are again, uh, reconsidering and listening to Charlie Parker over and over and over. And uh, it never gets tiring. I remember the Arista days when Savoy reissues were handled by Arista and uh, the big box set of uh, these complete recordings came out as well as individual LPs. And now we're looking at them from even a further distance. And um, this music just never gets tired. Um, I think that when those came out on Arista, uh, th there was less time that had elapsed between those recordings and that release than between that release and now. You're right. So this is, this is really another order of magnitude of historical perspective. That's a great way of looking at it. It makes me feel even older. But, uh, <laughs> but, but it's still amazing to hear the fire and life in these recordings, um, which we're hoping that we can introduce to a whole new generation of people um, beyond just the jazz studies people. But digging into this, um, I mean, you were probably deeper into it than I was, but... Uh, what, what new sensations, what new appreciations did you feel from uh, going back and listening to these uh, classic recordings? Well, in a sense, I didn't spend that much time re-listening to them because I know so many of them by heart and uh, have internalized so many of them uh, from the days when I was first discovering them. Mm -hmm. So this is, this is the canon. This is, the, this is my, uh, part of my Bible as far as a listener uh, and, uh, and a reviewer and a writer goes. Um, but every time I do listen to them, and, and that it did include uh, in several uh, cases, hearing these again and again as I was working on this, uh, I'm always struck by how uh, new they constantly sound. And uh, one reason I don't uh, spend that much time going into Charlie Parker's recordings today is because it's a rabbit hole for me. Mm -hmm. I start listening and... Uh, then I'm, oh, I got to play that one. Oh, but what about this? Oh, that reminds me of that one. And all of a sudden, 90 minutes have gone by out of the day, and I don't always have that to spend. It becomes kind of a guilty pleasure. Yeah, and, they, and the tunes are so short, and yet they're so to the point that um, it's, it's hard to overeat or make a meal too large with them because they just have such a fire to them. And still, to this day, um, you can feel that when you listen to these. Absolutely. There's no, there's no question. But uh, when I was working on the essay, uh, and that's, this is what took a lot of my uh, time and effort, I was trying to figure out what that is like for people hearing it for the first time now. I mean, uh, for, for those of us who have been into jazz for years, as I said, this is the canon. We, I have multiple CD reissue versions of these tracks, as well as those LPs that, uh, that you worked on uh, putting out with Arista. Uh, I have, I, you know, I have all that. This is, this is old news for us, but I know it's important new news for a lot of listeners who are now getting into vinyl again. That was kind of the thinking behind this set to put these out into their original vinyl record uh, covers and, and the way they originally looked right down to reproducing the artwork and the, and the writing on the back. So what I was trying to do was place this in a, in a context where people who would not be inclined to listen to this music 
could hear it for what it is. I mean, there's some big obstacles for modern listeners. It's not high fidelity. Uh, these are short, as opposed to people spending a little more time with their music, even though attention spans get, get shorter all the time. Uh, it, it's in a style that predates rock and roll and everything that stemmed from rock and roll, which has influenced everything everybody listens to. So I, I've had people say to me, oh, well, that sounds like cartoon music. Because from their perspective, it does. It sounds like music from before the 50s which they are used to hearing as background music and cartoons. So you have to kind of push past all of these surface obstacles, I think, for a lot of uh, new listeners to really understand what's going on in the music. And that's what I was trying to convey uh, for those listeners. Well, you have, you're looking at a bunch of people of this generation and now looking backwards. Um, but when this music was made, you had a lot of people that this music was pointing forwards to just through the excitement oh and speed and agility and uh, reaction to uh, the slower, larger, larger ensemble dance band music at the time. Absolutely. And, uh, and it's still, it's still to this date and always will have a fire of its own. Oh, uh, no question. No question. I was simply trying to get people to see past the initial stumbling blocks so that they could really understand and feel that fire. And I think it does come through in any case. But as I said, there are listeners who, modern listeners who uh, don't really know what to make of this or really understand why it was so revolutionary. Mm -hmm. And part of that is because everything we've heard since then, including rock and roll, has built on these innovations. Well, I'm sitting here with our friend Chris, who is of yeah. a younger generation. Oh, yeah. And what does high-speed bebop mean to you? Yeah, <laughs> you know, that was kind of going to be one of my questions was, you know, I compared it to, with Tom earlier to the Beatles being everyone's, you know, influence. They saw him on the Ed Sullivan show, this and that and the other. You've heard it a million times. It seems like Charlie Parker is kind of that figure for, for many jazz musicians. What about what he did set him apart and was so influential to those that came after him? There are several things. Um, to begin with, uh, Parker and Gillespie and the other um, bebop inventors, creators, uh, were committed to the idea of seeing the music as something other than mere entertainment. So instead of dance bands where people went and did something else besides hear the music, they were playing for people who wanted to simply come and listen. And in that sense, they really worked to elevate jazz in general to a level that certain musicians before them, including Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington, had been doing, but it wasn't really recognized. I mean, Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington played with large uh, dance orchestras and they were popular. Jazz and popular music were the same thing at that time. People were not always um, comfortable with seeing this as great art. And the bop musicians came along, they were, they were firebrands. They said, no, this is, this is important. We're, what we're doing takes a level of skill and knowledge that you should sit and listen to it. Now, it's okay if you want to dance to some of it, but this is, this is for listening. This is art music. So that's a big shift. And the fact that it was coming from African-American musicians was another big shift. And in a, in a sense, these were, in, at least in music, the first angry young black men. Angry in a positive sense, of course. Right. And 
but from a strictly musical standpoint, well, they sped up the music. They basically doubled the tempo of everything. Mm -hmm. Things that used to be fast in the swing era became standard. And when you wanted to play fast and bebop, you went twice as fast as that. Uh, you know the old uh, phrase they used to use, uh, speed kills? Mm. Well, for bebop, it was speed thrills. Right. And it, it really lifted the excitement level to a, an extraordinary degree. And then uh, they uh, took some of the innovations that had uh, occurred 30 years ago in uh, French Impressionism and some of the other early 20th century classical movements and in a way adapted those to bop, which is where they got the unusual and more colorful chords, greater use of chromatics, which gave the music an extra texture, an extra layer and depth that it didn't always have in swing music improvisations. Those swing music improvisations could be wonderful and emotionally satisfying and intellectually engaging. This took it to another level and at a speed, as you pointed out, where it, it, everything gets so packed into a single chorus that it, it just kind of blows you back, like in those commercials for the speakers where the guy's in the easy chair and, and his hair is right. flying back. Well, it was also just music you can't dance to. That's not why they were making it. Right. 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 Now, when they played a slow blues or something, or even a medium tempo blues, uh, people in clubs did occasionally dance and and. Uh, I don't know of any musicians who said, oh, no, no, you can't have that. They were happy that people were enjoying yeah. the music, but it wasn't its primary purpose. Excellent. Boy, that was, that was a heck of a soundbite, Neil. That was pretty concise. <laughs> oh, there, can, oh, okay, good. Say. All right. All right, good. <laughs> well done. Well, yes. well played. Well yes. played. <laughs> I'm giving, showing my age here. Uh, back in college, all of these things that were on LPs in a nice box set. I'm sure you remember those, Neil. I'm sure you may even still have some. Yeah. Um, the Savoys on Arista and Freedom. Mm -hmm. and, um, the Bird on, on Verve and uh, yep. the Dial recordings, obviously, and the Savoy. The Dials came earlier, and they were on, I remember in college running out and buying, remember Spotlight Records? Yep. Um, who put out the Bird on Dial. Um, right. And I think every time I bought one, I would just go home and listen to it over and over and over. I was in college at the time. And um, then Arista Records put out the complete Savoy recordings. And uh, all of those. And eventually they ended up all in one, under one ownership, which is why the uh, sort of the main CD reissue that people will turn to is a three CD set called The Complete uh, Savoy and Dial recordings. Mm -hmm. Because they were all done around the same time. Uh, yeah, Dial was a little Wood. earlier, and I think like 46, 47, around there. Well, uh, actually, Charlie Parker had recorded for Savoy first. Oh, he did? Uh -huh. And he, Yeah, he, he recorded for Savoy first, which was based in New York. And uh, then he went out to Los Angeles for uh, an ill-starred uh, trip. First time bebop was being played on the West Coast. It was not terribly well-received. Hmm. He fell into big drug problems. He was out there for, I believe, the better part of a year. Um, and I believe it was six months that he spent he was at, relaxing Camarillo, at Camarillo, yeah. Yeah, at Camarillo State Hospital, yeah. uh, getting, getting clean. And during that time, uh, he began re making records for Dial, uh, which was owned by a young guy who put this record company together, primarily to record Charlie Parker, 
because uh, he was a big fan. The guy's name was Ross Russell. He ended up writing uh, the book, Bird Lives, about Charlie Parker. And uh, so when Parker went back to New York, uh, he immediately went back to recording for Savoy, and a few of those sides came out. And now Ross Russell, who has moved in, in the interim to New York to better further his uh, record work with Charlie Parker, he says, well, wait a minute, I have a contract here. It's an exclusive contract. And exclusive. It said that uh, Parker owned him uh, about another eight singles, another eight recordings. And these, uh, Savoy said, well, you know, I don't see any uh, signed and um, uh, filed contract with the union. And basically, Charlie Parker owed us 12 recordings when he went to the West Coast. So actually, your contract is null and void because he never should have signed it because he was still on a contract. And they went back and forth on this for a while. Nobody really wanted or had the money to spend on a big legal fight. So the whole thing sort of disappeared into the gloaming and they coexisted. Parker recorded for both of them for uh, mm -hmm. most of 1947. Interesting. And here we are talking about it and listening to it and recycling it yet again. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Neil, I'd love to hear your take on uh, the greatest jazz session ever. Oh, the, the 19, uh, the, the uh, concert up in Toronto. Yeah. Yeah. 1950. Is that right? 1953? Um, the one I'm looking at uh, is, is referring to Davis, Roach, and Curly Russell and appearing as the Reboppers. Is, that the, is oh. that the same one you're talking about? No, no. The one that uh, they sometimes call the greatest jazz concert ever, at least that's how it was under one of the reissues, uh, was uh, a concert that Charles Mingus put together with Miles and Dizzy and Bud Powell. Was that in Toronto? And Max Roach. And that was in Toronto at, uh, um, sorry, I'd have to look it up, at a, a large concert hall there. It might have been Toronto Town Hall. Uh, it wasn't Massey can't... Hall, was it? Massey Hall, sorry. Yes, of course. I wasn't, uh, yes. Jazz at Massey Hall. Ah. So that's the one that they often call the greatest jazz concert ever. Gotcha. I'm sure there were other greater uh, jazz concerts, but that was one that I had to record. <laughs> sure. That's, sure. Yeah, that's the one. That, well, it was unusual because it was reuniting um, Bud Powell and Bird and Dizzy hmm. after they had all gone their separate ways. So mm -hmm. bringing them all together for this one concert was a special event. And uh, it was originally issued uh, under Charles Mingus, who would put it together. He had his own record label called Debut Records. And he first put it out there and then eventually ended up into other catalogs. And, and it was reissued as the greatest jazz concert ever. But what's the one you're talking about? This is the one that's in the, uh, the press release here. And it says um, the 28 tracks that make up the Savoy 10-inch collection, some of the world's earliest bebop recordings, including takes from a November 1945 date, often referred to as the, grade, the greatest jazz session ever featuring Davis Roach and Curly mm -hmm. Russell. The greatest jazz session ever. Session, okay. yeah, not not concert. Sorry, right. that's what that's what threw me. How do you think that went? It was pretty crazy to have all those guys together, huh? Well, that was basically Charlie Parker's band at the time. I mean, Miles Davis was 19 years old uh, when he sought out Charlie Parker and impressed him enough with his playing to join his band. Yeah, it was so that before was, he was, that was before he was Miles Davis, so right. to speak. Oh yeah, these are these are those are Miles Davis's first recordings with Charlie Parker, and based on that, he then made his first record session also for Savoy under his own name, 
uh, in which he had basically the same band, but asked Charlie Parker to play tenor saxophone. So it wouldn't sound exactly <laughs> like mm-hmm. Parker's group, uh, which it it's almost still does because Charlie Parker on any saxophone is still Charlie Parker. But it's one of only a couple of instances in which Charlie Parker recorded on tenor saxophone. And so Miles Davis, yes, was very young and very green. And uh, as you say, it was not yet Miles Davis. This is four years before the recordings that we now know as the birth of the cool, mm-hmm. which really helped establish Miles in the, in the next phase of his career. So that was, um, at the time, you know, we look at it now and see those names and go, oh my goodness, as you ask, what would it have been like having all those guys together? And the answer is uh, it would have been like, you know, <laughs> any nightclub on right. 52nd Street during those yeah. years. <laughs> there you go. You know, this isn't probably for this interview whatever but uh bill claxton the photographer was a friend of mine yeah uh he has great stories um hooking up with charlie parker right after his i guess uh, clax was young but i think yeah out in la yeah i think he was with peggy and uh charlie was relaxing at camarillo state hospital but he got out and um somehow he and clax hooked up for the day and um, Clax took his camera, and they went running around L.A., and Bird looked enormously healthy. And mm-hmm. um, unfortunately, Bill had a flood in his house in the 60s Aye. and destroyed um, some of his, some of his oldest pho- photos, so, in there, yeah. including his shots with, I think, all but one photo that he had. I think he still had one left. But mm. uh, I said, you know, I was talking to him about, you know, some of your grudge photo sessions. He said, some of the best stuff I did was just shots of Charlie Parker walking around LA and smiling. And then it all got taken away. Yeah. What a shame. Uh, yeah. Anyway, that's a diversion. I think we've got enough to put on the site okay. and feature the disc. And um, it's great talking to you, Neil. Yeah, um, you too. We'll run into each other one of these days. I'm yeah. sure. Okay, great. You too. Bye. Thanks.